We know you have lots of questions. If you think that you've developed symptoms. Should I avoid large public gatherings? Whether schools should be closed. Welcome to Common Sense. Here we address your questions about COVID-19 with interviews featuring experts in medicine and leaders in community, public, and global health. Here's your host, Dr. Ted O'Connell. Welcome to the podcast, COVID-19, Common Sense Conversations on the Coronavirus Pandemic. I'm your host, Dr. Ted O'Connell. This is our weekly update, and this week we're going to do things a bit differently. In addition to the high-yield information I usually review, I have a guest with me to discuss testing for COVID-19, and I'll introduce him in just a few moments. First, I'd like to thank Pranay Bonagiri from the Toro University School of Medicine for his help with the research for this episode. I'd also like to ask that if you like this podcast, please subscribe to it, give us a rating, and tell your friends and family. All of this really helps. The first topic we're going to discuss is the idea of herd immunity, which is also called herd protection. You've likely heard about this topic in the news, and there's no pun intended. The idea with herd immunity is that there is indirect protection from a disease due to a large percentage of the population having immunity. Basically, if enough people are immune, an illness does not spread because the infectious disease does not have enough people to infect and then be transmitted. This immunity can occur either through vaccination or through previous infection. Now, the important issue with herd immunity is there is a certain percentage of the population that must be immune through vaccination or previous infection in order to prevent a virus such as COVID from spreading widely. There is a term called the herd immunity threshold, which is also called the herd immunity level, and this is a critical proportion of a population that has to be immune to a disease to provide a measure of protection for individuals who are not immune. There is a way to calculate the percentage of people who need to be immune to a particular disease based on the average number of new infections caused by an infected person in a population that is susceptible to the disease. Based on what we know about COVID-19, this number is around 3. And based on this number, approximately 50 to 70% of the population must be immune to COVID-19 in order to protect those who are not immune. In the United States, about 3 million tests have been performed as of this week. About 20% of these have been positive, though epidemiologists estimate that if we were testing everyone and not just those with symptoms, only one half to 2% would actually be positive. This number is way below the 50 to 70% required for herd immunity. So at this time, the most effective way to achieve herd immunity is to focus on vaccine development and testing. So now that we've discussed the idea of herd immunity, I'd like to introduce you to my friend, Dr. Tim Harita, to discuss COVID-19 testing, and then we'll loop back into testing for immunity. Dr. Harita has been practicing family medicine in Southern California for 23 years. He graduated with honors from Dartmouth Medical School in 1997. After serving as chief resident at the Kaiser Woodland Hills Family Medicine Residency Program, he became a member of their faculty and later became program director. He continues to enjoy teaching medical students and residents and is an assistant clinical professor at the David Geffen School of Medicine at UCLA. Currently, Dr. Harita practices in Oxnard, California with the Southern California Permanente Medical Group and in his community at the Westminster Free Clinic. His publications include several textbooks and a peer-reviewed article in the journal American Family Physician. 
He is a member of the Alpha Omega Alpha Medical Honor Society, and in 2018 was awarded Fellow of the American Academy of Family Physicians. Tim, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Ted. Great to hear from you. Absolutely. Tim, is there anything you'd like to add to this discussion of herd immunity that hasn't already been covered? Yeah, I think one thing to understand is uh, the contagiousness of a disease is what helps us calculate the herd immunity threshold, which is like the finish line in a race. So for coronavirus, COVID-19, the number you mentioned was about three, which means about 70% of the population would need to be tested. You compare that to something that's much more contagious, like me, where that number is about 12 to 18. You need about 95% people to be immune to it, to have the herd immunity threshold reached. So to do that, we need a vaccine. That's one of the most obvious things. And that'll probably take about 12 to 18 months. Yeah, that's a, so we're dealing with quite a bit of a timeline in, in terms of getting to that point. Tim, can you explain to our audience the two types of testing, the so-called diagnostic tests and serologic tests? Sure, sure. Uh, diagnostic testing is when a person has the disease and we test them for the presence of that disease. Um, and right now, what we're looking at for diagnostic testing is a test that looks at the genetic material of the virus, uh, in this case, RNA for the coronavirus, um, in a process called polymerase chain reaction, or PCR. And what that does is it takes pieces of that RNA in the virus from a swab, and it amplifies it millions to billions of times. Um, and that's the majority of the testing that we're doing right now. The second type of testing, serologic testing, is a test that focuses on the immunity. So it doesn't really test for the disease itself. It tests for antibodies. Um, and we can test for whether or not the person has been pri- previously exposed to the disease and specifically looking at specific immunoglobulins, immunoglobulins G and M, which are different antibodies. And we can tell if someone's been exposed to it in the past and tell whether or not they're immune to it now. And that's really a, the best way we can get a sense of that herd immunity threshold that you were talking about earlier. So we have some scientifically minded people and people who are just interested in these topics. Do you mind just giving us a little bit more of an idea about immunoglobulin M and immunoglobulin G and what those two actually tell us about a disease? Absolutely. So immunoglobulin is a term that we use uh, commonly known as antibodies. There's five different types. Um, Immunoglobulin G is uh, the most common uh, immunoglobulin found in your body. Um, and that's the one I think of as the guardian. That's the one that keeps watch for an infection that you've already been exposed to. Uh, in case you're re- in case the infection happens again, it's ready to attack. Uh, immunoglobulin M is the one that is typically seen in the acute phase of an infection. We know from previous coronavirus infections uh, and outbreaks that immunoglobulin M starts to peak at about a week. Um, It continues to rise at about two weeks and is typically seen for the next month or so. Immunoglobin G in previous coronavirus infections lasts about one year uh, up to two to three years and then starts to wane after three years. So that begs the question then whether we're with when people develop immunity to COVID-19, whether they're actually going to have long-term immunity or whether it's going to fade after a few years, right? 
Yeah, it, it almost definitely will fade after a few years based on our prior experience. Okay. And and this IgM or immunoglobulin M and, and IgG, so the M tells us whether you've been infected recently and G tells us whether you're actually immune to it. Is that right? Yeah, so IgG or the antibody immunoglobulin G, it hangs out on your B cells, the mature B cells, uh, which circulate in your blood, and they basically keep guard for a new exposure to that same infection. Um, and if they see it, they attack it pretty quickly. Okay, that's great. I, I like the idea of calling it the guardian for immunoglobulin G. I've never actually heard of that. I'm going to use that in my teaching with medical students. Awesome. We get the question a lot about whether everyone should be tested for COVID-19. What, what's your take on this? Um, I, I do know that there's a myth out there that if we tested everyone today, this would all be over. Uh, unfortunately, that's not true. Testing's not an unlimited resource, uh, it, and it's unrealistic for us to test, you know, the 330 million people that we have. Uh, and in addition to that, it only gives us a snapshot of who's infected acutely right now. A good analogy is it's, it's like the bullets you have going into battle. Um, if you go into battle and on the first day you shoot all of your bullets, then uh, you'll probably lose the battle. So uh, not everyone needs a diagnostic test. And I think if we tested everyone today for that serologic, that second test, uh, it may be a waste of resources. Uh, that doesn't mean that we don't need more widespread testing. That's, that's pretty clear right now. Okay. And so why has our ability to test for COVID-19 taken so long? Primarily because I think we were ambushed by this. In the news, you'll hear about a novel coronavirus, which means it's a new virus we didn't know existed on the planet. Science! 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 Hello, podcast fans. Want to get weird with us? Come check out the Mad Scientist podcast. We are a weekly show that looks at the history, philosophy, and hard facts behind your biggest paranormal questions. Did the government really pay for a psychic spy program? Yes! Is it true that surgery got its start in grave robbing? Yes! Can a roller coaster really kill you? Legally, we can't say so for sure, but sometimes... Yes! Mm. Join myself, Chris Cogswell, and my co-host, Marie Mayhew, as we examine the science, philosophy, and history behind the strange and unusual. All to discover what's possible and plausible versus what's, well, just made up. Check us out wherever you find your favorite podcasts. The Mad Scientist Podcast. Uh, prior to the last several months, um, so developing a test, uh, it takes time. It's not an easy thing to do. And this is something that would be unheard of for us to have a, a test that's w in widespread use after only a few months of us knowing it existed. Um, and it takes, it takes time to develop the test to, to make sure that it's valid and then to deploy it in such a large group of people. Okay. And what about reports of people who were initially denied testing and, and then turned out to have COVID-19? What, what do you say about that situation? Uh, when we first, uh, I can just tell you from experience on the ground, when we first had the test, it was only done through the CDC. So all the, all the testing was done through a central place. Uh, then later on, only through our state and public health. So if we had a case, we basically had to call them. Uh, they were very busy in the first several weeks. And they had pretty strict guidelines uh, as to who could get tested and who couldn't because there weren't that many tests to begin with. So it focused mostly on the most vulnerable patients, 
There were a list of questions that we asked. Have you been had any foreign travel? Um, is the patient over 65? Did they have comorbid diseases, which means other diseases that make you more vulnerable? And did they have the symptoms that made us think of uh, COVID-19, which were fever, cough, and shortness of breath? And the fever the fever criteria was pretty strict also. Um, they had to have a, had a documented temperature above 100.4 degrees. Um, and that, in the beginning, made us deal with the problem of we had a patient who definitely, by our judgment, had COVID-19, um, but they didn't meet the criteria. So again, with no treatment, they were asked to, you know, stay at home, uh, avoid um, contact with other people uh, for about 14 days. Um, and fortunately, that's been loosened up a lot. And the criteria for who can be tested changed uh, significantly. Another challenge on the front lines is the uh, the criteria changed almost on a daily basis, certainly on a weekly basis for who could and could not get tested, which made it a big challenge just to stay up to speed and be busy with all these patients that were sick. Yeah, it really did. And sometimes even within the day, criteria would be changing. So it's uh, a struggle to keep on top of that. So Tim, I'm going to switch gears now and talk about blood testing for immunity and talk about what we know and some of the details around this. And, and I'll kind of go through the the research that we've prepared for this and then ask if there's anything that you want to add to this, if, if that's okay. Great. Yeah. So initially, there were no antibody tests for COVID-19 that were approved by the FDA. And last month, the FDA actually relaxed rules regarding antibody tests that made it easier for companies to manufacture and distribute them because basically they wanted to make this testing more available. More than 90 companies have come forward with antibody tests so far. Uh, unfortunately, unapproved tests from Chinese companies are starting to be used and sometimes be used by public health departments in major cities such as Denver, Los Angeles, and Austin. And their accuracy has actually been questioned. There, there's some belief that on these tests, they may be cross-reacting with other coronaviruses, such as the ones that cause the common cold. Recently, the FDA actually re reversed course and tightened up their rules around um, developing these tests, and they will now review data on serology tests to try to improve the accuracy of these tests. The first test to be granted an emergency youth authorization, it's called the QSARS-CoV-2 IgG-IgM rapid test. It's a very um, kind of complex name. This is produced by a company called Cellex Incorporated. Cellex reports a sensitivity of 93.8% for this test and a specificity of 96.4%. This is based on samples of, of just 128 Chinese COVID-19 patients. So their data is not even that robust. These numbers of sensitivity and specificity mean that a significant number of people who have COVID-19 will test negative using this, these tests, and a significant number of people who don't have the COVID-19 virus will test positive. This effect becomes magnified when the prevalence of a virus is low in a population. And we know that based on the data we have so far, it's between a half a percent and 2% um, in the general population that's currently estimated. So that's a low prevalence, which can really magnify the number of people who are having tests that are falsely negative or falsely positive. 
This week, the FDA has also authorized tests from ChemBio Diagnostic Systems and another company called Ortho Clinical Diagnostics. On April 10th, the National Institutes of Health, or NIH, began a study to determine the number of undetected cases of COVID-19, and their aim is to collect blood samples from 10,000 volunteers to provide data for epidemiologic models so we have a better understanding of how many people have actually been infected. Again, 10,000, not a huge sample size, but much larger than we than we have so far in terms of really getting a focused look. And I think this will give us a better idea uh, of approximately how many people have actually been infected. Um, Tim, is there anything that you wanted to add to, to this information about um, immunity testing? Yeah, you mentioned a couple things. Um, sensitive and specificity. Um, in med school, these were probably my least favorite things to learn about. Um, they're very dry. But sensitivity, is a t in, when we talk about tests, um, has to do with how, how we're able to detect the disease in a population, whether or not we think they have it. Um, and if you don't have good enough sensitivity, you get false negatives. Um, specificity means when that test is positive, does that mean it's that specific disease that we're looking at? And if you don't have good enough specificity, you get false uh, positives. And so bad sensitivity, false negatives, bad specificity, false positives. Um, and there have been some reports in the media about people testing negative and then testing positive. Um, and I think uh, most of those cases will have to do with uh, the sensitivity and specificity of the test. Not so much that you can get coronavirus multiple times back to back. Um, the FDA has been pretty strict uh, historically. I think we, we rely on them to be strict, uh, but I'm, I'm really happy to see that in an emergency situation like what we have now, uh, they've been able to loosen up the criteria for us to deploy testing uh, in a much more rapid fashion. And that might be a lifesaver. And testing in general, I think if we look at South Korea, they've been kind of the gold standard uh, of their ability to get a bunch of people tested very quickly. Uh, they were hit pretty hard with the previous uh, SARS epidemic, um, and they made really good preparations uh, this time around. And I think we're going to learn this time around uh, how to be better prepared when something new comes our way. Yes, I hope so. That That's probably the one guiding light coming out of this is this will hopefully teach us to be better prepared for the next time we have a pandemic. Yeah. So that's where we are as of April 18th, 2020, which is when this interview is being recorded. We hope that you now have a better understanding of herd immunity, testing for COVID-19, and the current state of antibody testing. Again, understanding that these will be a moving target and uh, evolving rapidly and things will change there. Tim, I want to thank you for joining me on the podcast and sharing your expertise and insights. You're a, a talented physician and very clearly a gifted teacher, which I think is coming through just in our discussion. So we really appreciate your insights. Thanks for having me on, Ted. This was really fun. Absolutely, Tim. It's good talking to you. Have a, have a great day and stay safe. You too. Take care. That's it for today. Thanks for listening. This has been a production of Ars Longa Media. Our producers are Madison Linden and Chris Brightigan. Our executive producer is Dr. Patrick Beeman. If you have questions about COVID-19 that you'd like discussed on the podcast, send an email to info at arslanga.media. 
This podcast is for educational purposes only and not intended for medical advice. Be vigilant, but remain calm. Ars longa, vita brevis.